Hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, Episode 60. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, you're in for a treat because today's guest is Melissa Julwan. If you already know Melissa, and I hope you do, it's probably as the author of her popular cookbooks and Bogle family favorites, Well Fed, Well Fed 2, and Well Fed Weeknights. But that's just the beginning of her bio, which is one of the more interesting ones I've ever read. She's a retired roller girl. Prague is her favorite city. Duran Duran is her favorite band. And her life is also made better by her husband Dave, sports movies, leopard print, lousy truck stop coffee, always decaf, the bear crawl, and Jane Eyre. So you know we have good things in store with that one. Mel calls reading a constant in her life, and her love for books and reading shines through this episode. I think you're going to love it. Let's get to it. Mel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to talk about books. Oh, well, I can't wait to talk books with you. And here's the reason. I know you from the internet because of my family's paleo adventures, because that's what you're known for professionally. I didn't find you as a roller girl. I found you as the paleo girl. So we read all the cookbooks and made all the things. And I just had golden cauliflower soup for lunch. However, it's so good. If I, if all my cookbook purchase money just got me that one recipe, it would have been worth it for all the times I've made it over the years. Despite knowing you as a paleo person, it seems that you can't help but talk about books and reading on your stuff because it's that important in your life. And your book lover (laughs) badge is so clear, even though you're blogging about zucchini noodles. So even though you're writing about food professionally, the love of books shines through and I just love to see that. So tell us a little bit about your reading life and what it is about books where they just, I don't want to make it all gruesome. I was going to say where it bleeds through into (laughs) everything you do, but you get the idea. I'd love to hear it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I feel like it would be impossible for me to write my blog about food without mentioning books, which probably seems kind of weird. But um, reading and writing have been the two things that have always sustained me you know, through my life from when I was a little kid. And cooking is the same way in my family because both my mom and dad are really tremendous cooks and my dad owned a restaurant. So like the constants in my life have always been playing the piano reading and cooking. And it's impossible for me to kind of tease those things apart. Um, My dad is also a really big reader. And when I was a little kid, I would, you know, burn through my books and then just grab whatever he happened to be reading and read that. He used to get up really early to go to the restaurant every morning. And I would wake up when he woke up so that I could read before I went to school. I mean, like super nerd time. But The thing that I love about books that I've always loved is that they take you on adventures that you could never have that many adventures in your own life. Life is not long enough to do all the things and meet all the people. So I've always gravitated toward books that really create a sense of place and that are more character driven. I really love first person novels because I feel like the person is speaking directly to me. And I just love when you can kind of disappear into a story and time vanishes. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Okay, you have one of the more interesting about pages I've read on the internet. (laughs) That includes, let's see, I'm going to read your about page to you. I hope this doesn't make you feel totally weird. (laughs) 
Zucchini is my favorite vegetable. Cumin is my favorite spice. Prague is my favorite city. Duran Duran is my favorite band. And these are six other favorite things that make my life better. And one of them is Jane Eyre. Now, when you first started talking about books on your blog, what I mean is when I started reading your blog and heard you Uh talking about books, Jane Eyre was the one that you talked about. So many listeners to this podcast and guests on the show say, oh my gosh, it's impossible to pick a favorite book. But for you, it's Jane. And I know Jane's one of your favorites, spoiler listeners, but not everybody has such a deep, long lasting relationship with a certain title. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And I realize that might be a very personal question because books that are that have a special place in our hearts have a special place in our hearts for a reason that could be extremely intimate. So you know, you don't need to get all, you know, therapy session here. But I would love to hear about your history with Miss Jane. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about Jane. Um, when I was in, so this is a dirty little secret. When I was in uh, junior high and high school, I read a metric ton of Harlequin romances, <laughs> <laughs> like tons of them. My, my best friend, Renee, her mom read them like to the point where they were like, there were stacks of them in their house. Like you could walk up the steps and along the wall of the steps, there would be stacks of books on every step. So like we shared them all the time. Um, and then somewhere along the line, I don't know, even know, I think Renee read it, read Jane Eyre and dropped it into my hands with the idea that it was a romance. So that was the lens through which I read Jane Eyre the first time I was like, I don't know, 14 or 15. And I was all caught up in the romance between Jane and Rochester and I read it in high school and then I don't think I read it again for a really long time until at least after college. And I went back to it after college and was just blown away by what a fantastic, strong, intense character Jane is. I read it now at least once a year. I usually read it in January, but anytime I kind of hit a place where I don't know what to read next or I'm feeling kind of unbalanced in my life, I just pick up Jane Eyre and start reading it because every time I read it, I get something new out of it. She's such a strong character. And the thing that I love most now in like my most recent readings is how things are, you know, pretty bad for her (laughs) and a very easy solution potentially is dangled right in front of her. Uh And instead she stays true to her character, knowing that if she takes that easy solution, it's not actually going to be easy in the long run. And I just, I really respect that. And I try to, I try to live that way, right? It's not always fun or comfortable or even rewarding in the short term to do the right thing, but she does what's right kind of ethically and for herself. And it does pay off in the end. So I love that. Has your opinion about the book changed over the years? Um, it does. I mean, sometimes I read it and I'm like, oh God, Rochester is such a jerk. How can I, <laughs> how can I think he was so awesome? And then other times I read it and I feel so much compassion for him. And I think the more I learn about that time period and the constraints that were put on everyone, I mean, it was particularly bad for women, but there were also a lot of expectations for how men were supposed to behave too. I kind of view everyone much more compassionately the more I learn about living in that time period. Yeah, I can see that. Okay, so more personal questions. How many copies do you have of Jane Eyre? (laughs) That's an awesome question. Um, I do collect them, but I recently moved two years ago. I moved from Austin to Vermont, and I had to start weeding out my books because we also have another big move coming to Prague 
in April. So I've been slowly weeding out my collection. But at one point, I think I had about 19 copies. And now I'm down to about half that because when I left Austin, I gave copies that I liked to people who I love there so that they could keep them. Um, but right now, I have two hardcovers that are very small that I love so much because the paper makes that crinkly noise when you turn <laughs> and they fit in my purse really easily. Um, I have a copy in Czech, which I adore, even though I can't read it. And another in Croatian, which of course <laughs> I can't read. And then I have the, the one from the forties with the woodcuts in it. And another one that I found in it's not even particularly pretty, but it's from the 50s and it's got handwritten notes in it and it's really beat up. So it looks like whoever owned it read it a whole bunch of times. Uh-huh. So that one's really close to my heart, too. It's a very no nonsense copy with the really, really thin paper that makes that nice crinkly sound. I should also mention that I have a copy on my phone just in case I'm ever in the city. <laughs> I love you it. You never know. What's the story of the Czech and Croatian copies? Every time I go to another country, I look for a copy in the language of that country, but I want it to be a used copy. I don't want new ones. So like when we were in Paris, of course, like the bookstore has the brand new copy in French, Uh but it has to be used. Um, And I started my collection in 2010, the first time I went to Prague. And the day we got that book, we went walking. We just got off the plane and, you know, you read all the advice, go for a walk so that your jet lag can be minimized. So we went for this hall across the city. Um, and it was our first time there and we were really tired. And my husband and I were getting to the point where we were like not being very nice to each other. (laughs) And we were just walking and walking and we didn't know where we were going, but we came on to this, um, antique variat, which is a used bookstore that also has maps and postcards and old posters. And just on a whim asked the um, shopkeeper if they had Jane Eyre and there's no, the just sound doesn't really exist in Czech. So, you know, she's trying to say Jane Eyre and it's not really working. And I said, Charlotte Bronte. And she said, oh, Yana Erova. What? what? She, Yana Erova. Because Ova oh. is added to the female's last name in the Czech Republic. Yeah. So she goes in this back room and I can see her up on a ladder and she comes out with this copy of Yana Erova. And we bought it and meandered back to the hotel And I've been to Prague now four more times. I've never found another copy of Jane Eyre in Czech. And we couldn't find that bookshop again. (laughs) So the whole thing has this very magical kind of feel about it. And I just, I love it. I don't know if I'll ever be able to read it, but I'll probably keep it forever. I like the sound of that. Okay. (laughs) So question about Prague, bonus points, if you can work books in. Are you, what are your plans to move in April? What's, what's the time frame? And the, uh, I did not realize, I mean, I knew you loved Prague. 2010 was not that long ago. I didn't realize your love story with the city was so intense and compressed. Can you tell us a little bit about your big plans? Yeah. Um, I, I've always had this kind of, um, fascination with Eastern and Central Europe. I think that I read stories set there at just the right time. Um, if I try to trace it back, it kind of, I read the diary of Anne Frank when I was like 12 and it really struck a chord with me. So I do read a lot of world war two and Holocaust stories, which is always a really weird thing to tell people. Like I'm super into Holocaust stories is not the nicest thing to say. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I was really fascinated yeah. by it. I, I mean, I think it kind of goes back to that Jane Eyre idea where she somehow manages to find this inner strength all the time. And to me, the the Holocaust stories that I find so moving are the ones where like in the midst of all this terrible stuff that's happening, people still find dignity or the, the way to, you know, be gracious to someone else, or they have a fight with someone like when Anne Frank and her sister are fighting when they're hiding out. I'm like, that's, it's so human, right? They're in these terrible circumstances, but like they still get mad about petty things. Like I really, I liked that. (laughs) So there was all of that going on. And then I really like spy stories And I remember being a kid and just thinking, hearing about the Berlin Wall and thinking, you know, it went up overnight one night. What if your best friend lived on the other side? Like that was just fascinating to me. So I was always really interested in Central and Eastern Europe for all of those reasons. And then in the 90s, like everybody talked about how cool Prague was. So my husband and I were wanting to have an adventure and we just decided to go to Prague. And it was one of those things where pretty much as soon as we got there after that first day when we were really tired, it just felt really like, oh, yeah, we're here now. You know how sometimes you travel somewhere and you're like, this place is really cool, but you don't think you'd want to live there. You just really enjoy it. And then other places you go and you're like, ah, it just kind of felt like that. And the thing that I love is like, there are stories everywhere in Prague. There are murals and statues and the benches have dragon tails on them and cobblestones and some of the cobblestones are painted different colors and you find out it's because that's where a bunch of people were executed and like I don't know dark stories and inspiring Mm -hmm. stories it was the seat of alchemy for a long time so it's very magical so your first experience in Prague sounds a lot like my own involving getting lost Mm -hmm. Uh, it was pouring down rain when we were there oh (laughs) jet lagged I mean it was wonderful the whole time but that first morning and I remember we were navigating to Wenceslas Square which is uh-huh. a big deal. And we thought we were there and there was like nothing. It was empty people. <laughs> All the shops were closed. We were so impressed. Like, what have we done? At that moment, we found good food, not a, a magical used bookstore. Do you have a place to stay? Oh, and how long are you planning on going for in April? Is that yes. the move? It is the move. Um, we're thinking a minimum of two years because less than that doesn't seem like long enough to really give it a chance. And we don't know how long we would stay after two years. It just kind of, we're just kind of seeing what happens. Um, we just found out yesterday that a hotel where we usually stay is okay with pets. So we know where we're going to be staying our first like three or four days there mm-hmm. when we first get there. And we're not sure if we're going to rent an apartment before we go or if we'll find one when we get there. My husband is really good at research and he sends me these beautiful apartments every couple of days. Like this one's available now, but we can't of course rent one now. Right. So for anyone listening who doesn't know me and hasn't followed my blog for a while, this is very unlike me. I'm usually (laughs) a woman with a very detailed plan, but we can't really figure out a way to plan it down to the nth degree like we usually do. So we're taking a little bit of a leap of faith and That's one of the things that charms me so much about Prague is that because it's so much of the city is built on like built around the old town and these medieval cobblestone streets and alleys, it's super easy to get lost. But if you head in the general direction of where you're trying to go, you eventually get there. And it was such a like metaphor for life for me when I was there because I could not navigate the city the way I usually do. 
And I really like the challenge of not thinking about my life in the same way that I usually do. Uh So I'm really excited about that. We'll see what happens after I've lived there for six or eight months and check is so difficult and I'm still getting lost. (laughs) We'll see. It could be a little be careful what you wish for situation, but I'm ready for, I'm ready for a big adventure. I love to read about adventures. I'm pretty conservative in my everyday life. So I'm excited to have some adventures and see what happens. I like the sound of that. And I like the sound of following along without having to move. (laughs) Okay. So in the midst of all of this and impending international move and you just released your new book well-fed weeknights is that are we still in the like are we counting in days or weeks at this point when did that come out um it came out on november 1st so it's been a month and it was a very challenging launch because my husband and i actually self-publish which is fantastic in so many ways because we really have control over everything but it also means that when i turn in the manuscript the final manuscript after editing and everything to the printer, my work doesn't stop. The promotion starts. So it's been a pretty long two years of work. So where does reading find a place in all Mm -hmm. that? Um, I go to bed really early and I read for at least an hour before bed every night. Mel, what's really (laughs) early to you? Um, well, usually it's nine, but honestly, since we got back from, we were traveling in November for a book tour, we've been going to bed at like eight. It's so awesome. (laughs) (laughs) It's winter in Vermont. (laughs) Exactly. Well, it gets dark at like four. Uh So around five o'clock I start thinking it must be time for dinner. So we've, everything just kind of shifted up a couple of hours and we're eating dinner a little earlier and that's given me way more time to read, which is great because while I was doing the book, over the summer, we were doing all of our photography and work was stretching until, you know, the sun went down. So I kind of got behind on my reading for the year and I'm trying to make up for some lost time. Well, this is a good time of year for that. Okay. I want to hear about what you're reading now, but but that's not how this works. So we'll get there. (laughs) But Mel, you're going to tell me three books you love, one book you hate, and then what you've been reading these days. And then we'll talk about what you should read next. Are you ready to talk your favorites? I'm ready. Okay. Let's make book one Jane Eyre. Okay. Is there anything you'd like to add to Jane? (laughs) Okay. I do have a question. So a lot of people say old books aren't for me. The classics aren't for me. I'm not much of a reader. How strong is your sales pitch on reading your favorite Mm -hmm. books or books you think Mm -hmm. everyone would enjoy? Or is there a sales pitch? Mm -hmm. You know, I always feel really weird about selling books hard because I feel like books kind of find you a little bit. Um, but I will say that anyone who's kind of intimidated by reading, you know, something written by Charlotte Bronte or, you know, one of my other old, old favorites that isn't in my top three, but I'm going to sneak it in is the picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. Um, they do, there is a little bit of hurdle a little bit with the language because it is really different from how we speak now. Um, but the story is pretty timeless. And one of the things that made me really loved Jane Eyre and helped me understand more of what was going on was I at one point had a copy that was very heavily annotated with footnotes. And it took a long time to read that version because I read every footnote. But what that did was it made the experience so much richer because there's vocabulary that we don't use anymore that explained, you know, the footnotes explained words that I was unfamiliar with and gave me a little bit more context about what was happening you know, in religion and politics and 
society during that time. And that made the story a lot more relevant because I could draw parallels between what's happening in our lives and what was happening in Victorian England. So that really helped learning the context of the book. And, you know, generally I think it's great if you can just enjoy something on its face, but with the older books, it does help a little bit if you understand the context more. And I love that you're advocating for that, not as a, you know, 15 year old English student who's never seen a novel from that era, but as a well-read, well-rounded reader who knows her way around the story already. Okay. I may try that myself with a few books. Mel, what's book two? Book two is The Historian by Elizabeth Kostova. Why am I not surprised that this is on your (laughs) list? Okay. Tell us more. Okay. So I love books about books. The Historian is a little spooky. There's a little romance. It's told through letters and journals and diary entries and old documents. And the thing that really hooked me the first time I read it, because again, this is one that I read on a pretty regular basis, is the beginning is almost like a travel log. Like they, the, um, one of the characters is a teenage girl and she lives in Amsterdam with her father and she joins him on his travels all over the place. So they go to Croatia and when he's younger, you get to read his diary entries about going to Turkey and Romania and it's just the descriptions of where they're going and like the train rides and the romance of it all totally sucked me in. And then of course there's the Vlad Tepish vampire angle, which is really fun. <laughs> have you been the places that are being described in the travelogue? Um, a couple of them. I have plans to go to the others. There's actually this website that also loves the historian and gives you information about all the locations in the books so that you can go to them in real life, which is awesome. Um, Croatia, I think, and Amsterdam are the two that I've been to that they describe in the book. Well, you're about to be a lot closer. I did not have any vampire experiences when I was visiting those places. And I guess I'm glad, but (laughs) also just a little disappointed. (laughs) For now, the magic is confined to your your head. Yes. Okay. Well, at least, you know, books take you places you can't have, you know. Exactly. Life is too short for all the adventures. You have to have your vampire adventures in Coast of a Novels. Mel, what's book three? Okay. For book three, I chose a nonfiction book. Um, I don't read a ton of nonfiction, but I do like nonfiction books about adventure. So pretty much anything by Eric Larson, I would recommend wholeheartedly. I included Devil in the White City on my list just because that was the first book of his that I read. And for people who don't know, that's the story of the Chicago World's Fair and America's first serial killer. So there's these, each chapter kind of goes back and forth. And one tells the story of the landscaper who was working on the the World's Fair and the um, other chapters talk about America's first serial killer. So there's a very strong sense of place. There's a lot of mystery. And Eric Larson is just fantastic at taking nonfiction subjects and writing the stories like novels by drawing on primary documents and using quotes from them. So people actually kind of have conversations because he's drawing on their actual statements from letters and stuff. So Dead Wake is the story of the sinking of the Lusitania. Which is so good. Was it what you expected? I mean, how much didn't you know about the history he's writing about? The thing that I loved about that one, I mean, I knew the basic skeleton of the story. The thing that I loved about Dead Wake is that I feel like he did a really good job of 
just making you know more of the people on the ship and and understanding more about the politics of what was going on, which I didn't really know anything about. So I really, really like Dead Week, and I'm actually thinking about reading it again. I'm very big on rereading, in case you haven't picked up on that. <laughs> I do the same thing with movies. I do the same thing with foods I like. When I like things, I really, really like them, and I want to get to know them really well. Um, I really, really enjoyed Dead Week a lot. Was coming to peace with the rereading, rewatching, re-eating? That doesn't sound right. Mm-hmm. Was that a journey? <laughs> or have you always been okay with revisiting favorites? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty okay with that. Yeah. I, I had a harder time when I was younger with abandoning books that I wasn't really enjoying. And then I realized that like some some books, I think it might be worth like, you're not really into it, but there's something that compels you to keep reading. Mm-hmm. That's different than Ugh, this book is just doing nothing for me. Um, if a book's not doing anything for me, I abandon it and wish it well and hope it finds the person who it's supposed to be talking to. Um, and I, I don't know, I'm pretty comfortable with rereading because the stuff's good. I've never had a problem with rereading, but I feel like I'm called upon to give rereading pep talks occasionally because there are so (laughs) many books in the world that we don't have time to read. So, yeah, I mean, the way I look at it is that I feel like if a book comes along that I want to reread, it's because I've gotten very attached to the character and yes, you go through your life and you meet lots of new people and they teach you new things, but you also have your people in your life that you want there all the time. Oh, what a lovely way to think about books. Okay. So wrapping up those sweet thoughts, let's change mm-hmm. gears and talk about maybe a book you didn't like so much. Uh, so I hate to, we, you and I talked about this. I hate to say it out loud because I feel like so many people love this book. But I powered through to the very last sentence of the Goldfinch and was so, so, so angry. Well, my very first question was going to be if you actually read it all. Okay. You just said sometimes there's there's a difference between a book that's not doing anything for you and Uh a book that, you know, you don't want to quite give up on. So what about the Goldfinch made you not want to give up on it until the point that you finished and declared it your hated book? Um, the reason I didn't want to give up on it is because I loved the beginning so much and I knew, so I had my deep affection for the beginning because I really loved the premise and the, you know, I think probably the first third of the book, I really enjoyed it. Okay. So there was that. Uh And then there was the fact that everybody was saying how freaking great it is. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, okay, maybe this, the part I'm not enjoying right in here is going to pass it's going to end and it's going to come around and there's going to be a reason for all this stuff that I hate and the ending is just going to be like oh yes (laughs) and so I kept going which is really against my personal reading code of not continuing with books that make you feel bad so there were parts of the goldfinch where I just I didn't like any of the characters anymore and I just felt bad. I really loved Hobie. I didn't like the way Hobie was treated. Like it, I just was feeling bad, but I kept going. And then I got to the end and I mean, I'm pretty sure I just kind of huffed in disgust and dropped the book on the floor. <laughs> you know? broke your toes. <laughs> Which is in direct contrast to when you finish a book that you love and you're like kind of sad that it's over. And like, I'm not going to lie. I'm sometimes tempted to just flip back to the beginning and start all over again. I like that. I do. Okay. <laughs> so where in the Goldfinch popularity cycle did you read this? Was it new? Was it post Pulitzer? Do you remember? 
I'm wondering how much momentum was behind it. Yeah, there was a lot of momentum. It was not entirely new, but it wasn't, I think it was before it won all the prizes. So it had been out for a while and I'd been hearing, you know, I read stuff about it and people were talking about it on, you know, the description, like on paper, it totally sounds like my kind of thing, right? There's history, there's a mystery, you know, there's these rich characters, but yeah, yeah, it's a little dark, a little twisty. Exactly. Uh, really exactly. interesting setting. Yeah, exactly. It just didn't come together for me. There were too many, I feel like there were too many unlikable characters for mm-hmm. me. And I was thinking about this this morning when I was thinking about talking about it, thinking about why I didn't like the goldfinch made me realize that I think I don't like unreliable narrators. And Theo was just so slippery that I think I just, I felt like I was supposed to care about Theo and like him. And I just really didn't. So the unreliable narrator is hot these days. Do you read much like domestic noir? I don't really, I tend to gravitate towards things that are more historical. Mm -hmm. Like I'm looking at the other things that I scribbled down that I like the night circus room with a view, the book thief, you know, they're all kind of set in, rich environments and not necessarily in our time period. Yeah. Okay. That doesn't surprise me, but I was definitely curious. And uh, I was thinking about power in the goldfinch and who has it because a lot Mm -hmm. of your dark and twisty books Mm -hmm. have power wielded for evil, but also like a counterbalance (laughs) in the goldfinch. I just didn't feel like that was there. Yeah. Did you like the goldfinch? I appreciated the goldfinch. Yeah. I hated the Vegas interlude. Oh, I wrote that down on my notes. Yeah, hated it it hated lost it, me in it. Vegas. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, you weren't the first. Yeah. There's a metaphor for you. But, you know, like, I thought it was well done, but it wasn't to my yeah. taste at all. Yes. That's kind of where I came from. And it made it. me really, really uncomfortable. Not yeah. because... Yes. I mean, I assume that's what she was driving for, but... Theo is weaving his web and you can see it closing in and all my insides are just cringing in anticipation of the inevitable. Yes. I don't like to go there for 400 pages at a stretch. Mm -mm. No, I want to hang out with people I like or who can teach me something or who are inspiring in some way. And I like to learn things like, I don't know how much of the historian stuff is actually true, but I liked feeling like I was learning things about (laughs) history. (laughs) It totally counts. <laughs> Mel, what are you reading now? So like I said, I'm reading like a crazy person. I'm devouring books. Um, right now I am about halfway through Lexicon. Yes. Actually, and I haven't read that, but I really liked the word exchange, which I get the impression is similar. So tell us a little about Lexicon because it's on so, my shelf. Yeah. So Lexicon is is different for me in that it's a little bit more science fiction than I usually gravitate toward. But because it's about words, I was really fascinated. And my husband actually bought it for his Kindle. And because we're in a family, I can read it too. And I read the description. I was like, oh, it's right here. I may as well give it a shot. And I'm surprised at how much I like it because I just said I don't like unreliable narrators. And I really don't know what's happening in this story yet. (laughs) Like there's some mysterious stuff going on. But the thing that's making me be patient in watching this mystery kind of unravel is that the characters are pretty good. They're they're not always entirely sympathetic, but I I like them. I have affection for them already. So I'm curious to see what's going to happen. 
And it does have a little bit of kind of magical stuff in it. So we'll see. You know, the thing that's so tricky about fiction is that you can love a book all the way to the last page. And then the last page can just kind of make or break it. So we'll see what happens when I get to the end. That is so tricky. I'm having flashbacks now to the <laughs> that's happened recently. Oh, shuddering. Shake it off. I know. I know. It's really hard. Um, I should also mention that when I'm not reading like historical fiction, I really, really love straight up kind of thriller mysteries. So Lee Child, Daniel Silva, Louise Penny. So I just read um, the new Jack Reacher book, Night School, which I read in less than 24 hours because I couldn't put it down. <laughs> Okay, I adore Louise Penny, but I always assumed that Lee Child wasn't for me, but you like them both. Yes, I do. They're I really don't know different. anything about them. They're really, really different. Um, so the, the Lee Child books are, the reason I like them is because his character, Jack Reacher, is this big, strong, ex-military policeman who now kind of, sometimes there's flashbacks, so he's actually still in the military police. And then the ones that are more set in current times, he just kind of finds himself embroiled in things that he has to <laughs> sort out. The thing that I really like about them is that the Reacher character is pretty smart at things that I don't know anything about. So, like, it's Lee Child, of course. He'll, he'll go into great detail about how a bullet moves through space and why Reacher is timing things the way he is. And again, it's like that feeling of maybe I'm learning something. <laughs> <laughs> but what I really love is like this deconstruction of a world that I don't really know anything about. Um, and the rhythm of Lee Child's writing is really awesome. I was thinking about this when I was reading Night School. And the chapters are compact. I don't want to say short because they're not always really short, but they're like dense and compact. And he has its gift for leaving the end of a chapter where you, you just don't even want to breathe until you read the beginning of the next one. Like they're impossible to put down. I'm not <laughs> kidding. I had a cold this week and I was reading it at night. I fell asleep. I got up the next day, picked it up and read it until it was finished. And then wow. I was like, oh, now it's over. That's a bummer. But like, it's just so like the world he creates is really vivid. And yeah, I really like them. Okay. I love thrillers. Maybe I will try that. Yeah. Mel, is there anything you want more of in your reading life? Oh, just more time for books. Right. right. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes I wish, I don't really wish this. So, you know, the story, the monkey's paw always freaks me out. I don't, <laughs> I always say wishing is fraught with peril. I never make wishes, but it would be wonderful if you could somehow forget that you'd read a book so that you could read it again for the first time. Mm. And like some books, like with Jane Eyre, like I love that I've read it a bunch of times and like I know when my favorite part is coming up and I still pick up new things when I read it. But some books, like I enjoy them so much, I wish I could just wipe that part of my brain out and do it all over again. So if you could make that happen, that would be great. If I could, what else would you reread? <laughs> oh, geez. Um, probably Anne Frank and the book Thief. I'm very big on themes. I like to read books in clusters. I should also mention the book, The Lost. Do you know this book? No, I don't. It's a, it's a nonfiction book. It's a little heavy, but it's really good. It's about, I can't remember the author's name. I'm so sorry. He, is, he was trained in classics, so Greek and Roman literature. And his family was Jewish. And a branch of his family came to the United States before the Holocaust. And one of the brothers 
So his, I guess, great uncle went back for some reason. And that branch of the family was killed during the Holocaust. And all his family ever said was, I don't remember his name, Saul. Saul's family died in the Holocaust. And that's it. That's all he knew for most of his adult life. And he got really curious about what actually happened to them. And he wanted to understand more about his family. So he actually started just researching what happened to that branch of the family. And it, the, the book itself turns into like, it's almost like a mystery novel and, you know, a book, book about books as he's doing all of this research and trying to learn more about his family and also examining the relationships he has with his family who made it and who's still alive. And it's like, they travel all over the world and it's really, really moving and really, really cer cerebral. Like, it's not an easy book to read emotionally, and it's not a super easy book to read intellectually, but it's really, really well written and very inspiring to see someone like chase down their family history that way. And when I was reading it, he, he writes some really terrible stuff that happened, yeah. describes some really terrible things that happened to family members and other people in their village during the Holocaust. And it's very dispassionate. And I remember at one point turning to my husband and saying like, I don't know about this book. Like he's telling all this really terrible stuff, but he has no emotion about it. How could you not have any emotion about it? And then about two thirds of the way through the book, he kind of has this turn where he starts talking about his feelings. And that was the first time that I felt really emotional reading it. And I realized that that was really smart because he's going through all of this stuff that if he, if he was emotional about the things he was telling the entire time, you could never get through the book. <laughs> you would just be crying the entire time. Yeah. So it was, it's just, it's really great. It's a little bit of, it's a little bit of work, but that's one of the ones where I'd be like, yes, if it's hard, like hang on a little bit because it's so worth it. That's not one I would have found on my own. Thank you. And you know how I found that book? I'd love to hear. Lee Child, the author of the Jack Reacher books said that it was one of his favorite books. Really? Yes. And I'm like, wow, he's, super smart. Now I'll just read all the books. <laughs> yeah. okay. I love when one book leads you to another that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Yes. Yes. And I love to read in clusters too. Yeah. It feels really fun. I like to immerse and then I'm like, okay, I got to get out of the 1940s. What is happening? <laughs> Can I talk about wine with you? At my house, we like to call them book flights, kind of like a wine <laughs> flight or a bourbon awesome. flight where you compare and contrast by having them at the same time. Yeah, that's amazing. I like Book, that. Books are totally like wine like that. And you don't have to be, you know, you could be a total teetotaler and still, still appreciate I the love it. comparing and contrasting. So it's, <laughs> fun. it's fun. Okay. So I have ideas for you. I'm terrified you will have read them all, but I can't wait to give you recommendations right after the break. Mel, welcome back. Thank you. Okay. So it's been so fun to talk to you about your books because you're so self-aware about what you like and what you don't and what works for you. And that reminds me, you mentioned something about your reading code. Is this an actual thing that's written down? <laughs> it is not written down. I will actually, I don't know that I haven't written it down in a journal or anything, but I do remember writing on one of my blog posts about books a description of the kind of books I generally like so that when people read my recommendations, they could look at them through that framework because I really do tend to gravitate toward, you know, two or three specific kinds of books. Cause people ask all the time, like, I just want to find a great book and we don't know what that means for you. Right. It's very personal. 
Yes. So it is very personal. I'm going to try to find great books for you. I have high hopes, although I'm also concerned you will have read them all. That's okay. okay. I'll just reread them again because we know I like to do that. That's right. Oh, well, thank you. This will be fun and not tightrope walking. Okay. (laughs) What do you know about The Gollum and the Genie by Helene Wecker? Oh, my God. Yes. I was so happy that I feel like you totally get me because I love that book. And that like, I just, before we started talking, I opened up my Kindle to look in my favorites folder to make sure that I hadn't missed anything. And I saw the cover of the Gollum and the Genie and literally put my hands over my heart. (laughs) Okay. Well, since you love it, you can tell us about it. You should talk about it. You talk about it. Okay. So no pressure, anything. I'm so glad you love it. Okay. I only read that once, so that's a really good candidate for a reread. Well, I think when I think of you, I think of Prague, and I didn't know what a golem was until I went to Prague. And even <laughs> though this novel takes place in New York City, um, Wecker's jumping off point was the very real emptying out of the Jewish communities of Eastern Europe and greater Syria. And many of those residents left for American cities like Detroit or New York. So instead of writing a straightforward history, she wrote a story about two mythical creatures, of course. So one is a golem, which is a creature made of clay, in this case by a wicked scholar in a Polish shtetla, I can never say that word right, in a little Polish village. And that golem's purpose was to be the perfect wife. And the other mythical creature is a genie who has been trapped inside an oil flask in the Syrian desert for a thousand years. So they meet up in lower Manhattan, of course, around the turn of the 20th century, (laughs) and they form an unlikely friendship. And what I really like this book is the way that they they just, you know, they're just living, blending in among the immigrant community in lower Manhattan. And then there's a lot of magic and a lot of chaos. And it's a big story with lots of characters. There's a lot going on. But yeah, it works. And it's such an interesting blend of fact and folklore and straight up Mm -hmm. fiction. And you just don't see that a lot. Okay, what would you add? I was just going to say that as you were describing that, I was remembering how it just kind of whisks you away. So if you're a person who likes to read books that really transport you somewhere, it's a good one. It's a really good one. And if you think you don't like, you know, magical stuff, I would say you could still give this book a try because it's so charming. And there's a little, there's some thrilling stuff too. I'm not a huge fantasy reader, but see, mm-hmm. as soon as I define like my reading taste by that, someone will gush about a book to me and I'll pick it up to try it. And I love it. And I think yeah. this is one of those books. You don't have to, mm-hmm. if you're raising your eyebrows at mythical creatures, I think that doesn't mean <laughs> magical creatures, all of it. It doesn't mean you're, it's still a great book. Yeah. Okay. I feel, I feel like you're just, the, the, your description is right on is that it's more folklore than kind of fantasy we associate with like Game of Thrones or something. Yeah, no dragons. Yeah, no dragons. Okay. Well, I'm glad you feel understood for that pick because this next one is a little bit outside of your bounds. And yet, when I knew that we were going to talk, which I've been so excited about, I thought, oh, I think this sounds like a pick for Mel. Okay, it's Sleeping Giants by Sylvain Nouvelle. Have you heard of this one? I have not, and I'm super excited to hear more. Okay, well, it's a little bit of a sleeper, except even though it's early December when we're talking, you know, the best of the year lists are coming out, making Mm -hmm. a lot of people happy and a lot of people angry that we can't hold our horses (laughs) until 
it's actually 2017. So this is very science fiction. So I'm really glad you liked Lexicon, but it's also a whole lot of political thriller action. It's super fast paced and it's told in the style of inner office memos, personal journal, there are mission logs yes. and interviews with the narrator that never quite gets identified. So it always seems a little mm -hmm. eerie. It reminds me a lot of The Martian, not because of the way the story mm -hmm. unfolds or anything like that, but Nouvelle is a software engineer. He's not a novelist, but he pulls off a really interesting, highly readable, very authentic feeling story, which is what Andy Weir was able to do with The Martian. So I don't know if you read that one, if that would be a good thing or a bad thing in your book. This sounds great because I really, really love novels told through letters, diaries, oh, documents, good. et cetera. Yes. Well, because I secretly wish I was a detective and that makes me feel <laughs> like I'm digging through stuff I'm not supposed to be looking at. Well, and it's got kind of an FBI thriller feel to it. And it's That's also, perfect. what about weird? Is weird perfect? Oh, yeah. Okay. So here's what happens. The story starts in South Dakota when a big hole opens up in this 11-year-old old girl's backyard and she falls in. And when she's found, she's found sitting in the palm of a gigantic metal hand, like a literal <laughs> mechanical 20 foot tall hand that's made out of some kind of metallic combination that shouldn't actually exist. And it only weighs 10% of what you would expect something that big to be. And it's in a room, a dark room with glowing symbols on the walls and nobody knows what they mean. So government researchers get involved and they can't reach any conclusions. And then it's forgotten about by most people for a while. And then years later, that same little girl is all grown up and a world renowned physicist and she takes over the research for this sleeper project. So that's going on. And then on the other side of the world, there's a mysterious helicopter crash over Syria and they find out it's because of something that turns out to be linked to this giant hand that nobody's thought about for all these years. And pretty soon they, be this sounds so weird, but pretty soon this small team of classified researchers start finding other body parts, the ones that go with that hand all over the world. And they're trying to track down like who put them there? Was it aliens? Are they ancient? And it sounds really zany, but it doesn't read as silly or screwball. It's just straight page turner. How does that sound? Awesome. That sounds really good. Awesome. I'm, I'm happy. super excited. You're happy. Okay. Book three is back more like squarely in the Mel Jolwan wheelhouse. So much so that I'm wondering if you've read The Invisible Library by Genevieve Cogman. No, but the title makes me super happy. Okay. So I need to know more. That's a good start. This is the first in a fantasy series that follows the adventures of a spy. Shut up. Oh, Are hold you on. kidding? Hold on. A librarian spy. No. Yeah. So <laughs> her name's Irene and she's no ordinary librarian and her employer is no ordinary library. So she works for the library, like capital L library. And this library doesn't exist just in one world. It exists across space and time. And her job is to chase down unique works of fiction across, you know, alternate realities to keep these books safe because the books are very powerful and very dangerous in mm -hmm. this world, these worlds, I should say. So her job is to hunt them down and keep them safe for posterity. So her latest mission is to venture into like a steampunk kind of London to recover a copy of a very dangerous and powerful book. You want to guess? German brothers. This shouldn't be a guessing game. There's enough, there's enough mysteries to, <laughs> to resolve in this book. So she's looking for a copy of Grimm's fairy tales. I was going to guess Grimm's fairy tales. You were totally right. See, you're tracking. So, but when she gets to the time and place, the book is gone and other dangerous librarian spies are hotly pursuing it. And 
it's solid in the fantasy genre. It reminds me a lot of Neil Gaiman or Jasper Ford, mm-hmm. if you know, like the Air Affair. Yeah, I was just going to say, it kind of sounds like Air yeah, Affair a little a bit. A lot like it. So this is important. This is not Jane Eyre. This is not, it's a really fun book, but it's not like high literature. Capital yeah, that's L. okay. Yeah, it would make a great binge read though. What do you think? That sounds amazing. <gasps> Yay. Okay. The idea of like librarian spies. Yes. I could have just also, when, there. when you started talking about it, I was like, oh, I forgot to talk about Shadow of the Wind. <laughs> Noted. Well, yeah, that is an honorary, honorary favorite. Um, you know, I think that it's really important to, to go back and forth between books that are kind of, you know, change your life and books that are just really fun to read. They're, that's perfectly fine. And sometimes the ones that change your life are not the ones you expect. So you never exactly. know. Exactly. Exactly. Maybe I'll give up my dreams of being a detective and become a library, a librarian spy. Well, you'll be on the right side of the Atlantic if you do. At least, <laughs> at least to follow in Gogman's path set out here. Okay, Mel, of those three titles, which you think you'll read next? Oh, I'm definitely. I'm going to read them in the in the order. I'm going to save Gollum and the Genie. I'm going to read them in the order you said because I feel like Sleeping Giants would be really good after Lexicon. I see that. And then. Maybe Invisible Library and Gollum and Genie. Well, that sounds fun. I can't wait to hear what you think. I'm really excited. This has been so much fun. Oh, thanks so much for coming on. It's been great talking books with you today. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mel today. Please head to the podcast site to let me know what you thought of my recommendations and to share your recommendations for what Mel should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 60. And it's also where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. And don't forget to sign up for the 2017 Modern Mrs. Darcy Reading Challenge at modernmrsdarcy.com slash challenge. It's free and easy, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Sign up now to get your free reading challenge kit to help you get more out of your reading life this year. Readers, that's all for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.